Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Hello, everyone. I'm excited for today's episode. We have yet again another wealth psychology expert. Kathleen is a powerhouse and she is breaking the money silence. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word podcast, where it's our goal to examine the intersection between our minds, our money, and what matters most. And today I'm pleased to have on the podcast Kathleen Burns Kingsbury. I'm going to read Kathleen's bio because uh, it's impressive and I think it's important for everyone to understand her perspective and her background as she adds into our conversation today. A wealth psychologist expert, Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, founder of KBK Wealth Connection and host of the Breaking Money Silence podcast, is an internationally published author and speaker. Breaking Money Silence, How to Shatter Money Taboos, Talk More Openly About Finances and Live a Richer Life is Kathleen's fifth book. Named one of nine amazing conference speakers in 2017 by Investment News, Kathleen is a sought-after keynote speaker, consultant, and coach on the topic of women, wealth, couples, and money. Her mission is to empower women, couples, and families to shatter money taboos and communicate more effectively about financial matters. As an expert on financial psychology, Kathleen has appeared on television and written for consumer and trade publications. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, PBS NewsHour, Money Magazine, Today Money, Forbes, and CNBC. When she's not working, Kathleen is an avid alpine skier who lives for the next powder day. In her off-season, she enjoys mountain biking, kayaking, laughing with her friends. She lives with her husband and her cat, Avery in Mad River Valley of Vermont. So Kathleen, thank you so much and welcome to our podcast. Well, thank you. It's really exciting to be here, Sean. I was saying this before we started, but thank you so much with your deep knowledge to have accepted to come on my show. And I I just admire individuals willing to share their perspective on this taboo, as you would call it, and many others, topic of money. So I want to start with... um, I've seen on your website and some of your articles that you have a mission and it might not be your exact mission, but you've talked about this on several different consistent pieces I've read. It's to empower women, couples, and families to shatter money taboos and communicate more effectively about financial matters. Can you just explain to our audience on how you feel or that you or we can shatter these deeply rooted money taboos? Yeah, that's a loaded question, but I'll do my best. (laughs) Uh, My mission at my company, KBK Wealth, is to empower people to be financially confident. And also, um, I work with financial advisors to effectively connect and communicate with their clients. So I really see myself as kind of the bridge between those two worlds. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to breaking money silence and the whole, you know, the book, my podcast, all my work around it right now, really the whole idea is how can we take this thing that is taboo, right? If, if you look at the U.S., and I realize you're in Canada, but if you look mm-hmm. at the U.S., almost uh, 50% of Americans would rather talk about death, dying, or politics. 
when it comes to women, 61% of women would rather uh, talk about their own death than talk about personal finance with somebody else. And you think to yourself, wow, there's something really wrong with that. Because as a result, as you know, people aren't making great financial decisions. They're maybe not getting the education that they can get around finance. And we're not communicating effectively with our partners, uh, with our financial advisors, or with the next generation to kind of prepare them to be financially literate. So it is a big lofty mission, uh, but I feel very passionate about it and very lucky to know that other people are on this mission along with me, like yourself. Yeah. As you're explaining that, the system that has been created is just so, I guess, it ingrains us to not talk about these things. You talk about those percentages that we talk about death. I mean, a woman at 61% would rather talk about death than money. Yeah. Where do we start? Like if someone's listening and, you know, they might have starting to see that, hey, I need to start talking more about my money. I need to start talking to my spouse more about about this. Where do you think a good starting point is that we can start to have these conversations? And, you know, I want to take it to this perspective of, I feel like a lot of people place a lot of judgments around themselves and others around what they should or should not be doing. And in turn, I feel like it's created this vicious cycle of, I'm not going to talk about money because I'm bad at money. Yeah. And now everything that we look at or talk about, I see it on that lens. Or my spouse is oversaver or, un, or spends too much. So I guess I asked you where can we start, but let's say we start with recognizing what judgments are. As a, as a trained or you have a master's in psychology, maybe touch on what judgments actually are, like break them down. And then how does this apply to our journey to gain control of our financial judgments? Sure. You know, I think the important thing, just as a backdrop, is if you look at the financial services industry and how we've learned about money for generations, right? Mm -hmm. So traditionally, we were taught there was one way to do it. It was black and white. It was all about math. You were either right or you were wrong. Mm -hmm. And you put that black and white strategy or that black and white philosophy against this thing, money, that is so complicated and so emotionally loaded. And means so many things beyond just the numbers. And those two worlds collide. And so you have this black and whiteness, which can lead to judgment, right? You're either right or you're wrong. Mm -hmm. So that's a judgment. And then also we're so emotional about it, but traditionally we didn't talk about the emotions connected to money. And it, it really is somewhat of a perfect storm. So what typically ends up happening is we live in this culture of money shame. And um, shame for people who are listening in. I mean, unfortunately, you might be familiar with it. But when we think about shame, it isn't I did something bad. It is I am bad. Mm-hmm. So when we mess up with money, which, by the way, we inevitably are going to because that's the essence of having a relationship with money. When we mess up, we feel shame. We then don't talk about it. We then think everybody around us is doing it better. Uh, and as a result, we get pretty judgmental about it. And so you know, one of the things that I think is important is no matter who's listening in to be really compassionate with yourself and and really to start by looking at, you know, what are my thoughts and beliefs about talking about money? What judgments do I have? And start to just examine yourself first before kind of launching into uh, money conversations with other people. Mm -hmm. And around shame. So, this is something that I'm evolving and learning on about. And I guess I've been looking at shame versus guilt. Is there a time, because when, when I've read and reading is not always like 
the practical use of it are, are what you're, I guess there's theory and in practicality, but from what I've read, guilt is kind of like what you first described is like, ah, I shouldn't have done this. I did something wrong. Where like you said, shame is like, I am wrong. Is it okay to have guilt around our money? Not, maybe not guilt, maybe guilt's not the word, but I guess what I'm trying to get at is Brene Brown always talks about shame and shining the light on the darkness. So if I'm starting to recognize I have this shame, how do I get past it? Is it just seeing it for what it is? And like, I don't know if the word's guilt. I have a bit of guilt. Okay, I realize guilt. The emotions I'm feeling are this. Now I move on. So when it comes to guilt, and this is around anything, when yeah. it comes to guilt, there is appropriate guilt and then there's inappropriate mm, guilt. Okay. So appropriate guilt is I got angry. <laughs> this is a horrible example, but I got <laughs> angry and I stabbed my neighbor. I feel really guilty. I stabbed my neighbor. That's a pretty extreme example, yeah. but that's, you know, that's appropriate guilt. You clearly did something wrong. Yeah. Where we get into trouble is that often we feel like we did something wrong when in fact it's just we were human. So, mm. you know, this month I wasn't able to put money, you know, the money in savings I wanted to put in savings because, you know, my car broke down. And so we feel guilty about that. We feel like we should be better and shouldn't do that. Well, if the- there's extenuating circumstances. I'm not sure that's appropriate guilt. That's, you know, you're feeling bad. You wish it was different. But when we start to feel guilty about things in the inappropriate guilt area, mm-hmm. what ends up happening is then we feel we feel guilty. Then we feel mad at ourselves or upset with ourselves because we're feeling guilty. And it kind of mm-hmm. just layers and cycles and cycles. Mm-hmm. And often when people are feeling a large amount of inappropriate guilt, it can lead to that deeper sense of shame of, you know, I, mm. I'm a bad person. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a money example. You know, many of us were raised with thoughts and beliefs such as saving money is good, spending money is bad. Mm-hmm. However, if spending money is bad, that doesn't mean, oh, I spent money, I'm bad. See how it quickly turns from the action of spending money is bad? Oh, I mm-hmm. feel kind of guilty about that to, oh, I'm bad because I spent money. Mm -hmm. So it kind of collapses the two concepts together. Mm -hmm. And I think that part of what ends up happening is we often think about money with a very childlike mind. It's very simple. I mean, sometimes saving money is good. Sometimes it's not if you Mm -hmm. need to invest it and and make it work for you. Mm -hmm. And so it's all these different emotions that get all sorts of confusing around this thing called money. And so I'm not sure I answered your question, but I think that that's kind of how we look at guilt, inappropriate, appropriate. And then when it becomes inappropriate and complicated, it, it often kind of gets deeper into to the shame feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and it does because it, it's, rec- or when I say it does, it does answer the question because I, what I was wondering is, I liked your idea, sorry, about uh, the appropriate versus inappropriate guilt, because I think it's fine to be like, hey, I wish I didn't do that. But this appropriate and unappropriate guilt, I guess, is what I was getting to. So then if someone's looking at themselves and wondering, how do I deepen or become more aware of my money relationship? Because like you said, it starts with themselves. At what point, because you work with a lot of couples, at what point do you think you could start talking to your spouse or your partner about money in terms of your family system? Uh Uh-huh. At what point do you, can you start doing that in a healthy manner where you're not just projecting judgment? And we, we talked a bit before this and you talked about learning how to speak to your husband about money. So maybe you could use a yeah. personal example about, yeah. but like, because I know for myself, 
sometimes when I'm feeling stressed, I'll just blame it on someone else. And then there goes the judgment. So maybe those two things, when are we ready to have those conversations and touch on a personal experience from you and your husband? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I want to encourage everybody to try to have a money conversation. I I don't think you need to wait, but I do think if you are talking to your partner and it gets heated or you just are, you know, it gets into a fight or you're not seeing eye to eye and you feel stuck, that's a time to step back and go, oh, well, let me look at my relationship with money first and then I'll figure out how to connect with my partner partner. And you can do that work at the same time together. That can be pretty powerful as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'll give you an example because I I wasn't always, I mean, I've worked in money psychology for the past mm, 15 years. And uh, before that, I I certainly was somebody who was very financially literate, right? So Mm -hmm. I had a finance degree. I actually worked as an auditor and I really knew about the numbers, but I wasn't aware of how much in my marriage we didn't talk about money. Mm-hmm. So looking back, one of the, the turning points for us was, you know, I've lost track of years now. It was probably around 2002, something like that. We got ripped off by a contractor. So my husband and I bought a house. We decided to put on an addition. You know, we were all excited about it. We hired the contractor who happened to be our neighbor next door. <laughs> and within two months, he had conned us out of over $25,000. And he just stopped showing up. He moved out of his house. He stopped showing up. You know, clearly we were in trouble. And so while all of this was going on, you can imagine the tension in my marriage with uh, his name's Brian, with my husband, Brian, was getting higher and higher. We were both really upset and felt betrayed Mm -hmm. by this gentleman. And so we each had very different reactions to being ripped off. I mean, I think we both were angry, but I got very anxious and very like obsessed with the details. Like I really thought, Sean, that we were going to lose our house and I really didn't like to open the bills. And I'm somebody who is, you know, I'm kind of geeky. I don't mind, you know, writing checks and doing paperwork. And I just avoided it like the plague. And my husband, while he was angry, I didn't think at the time, speaking of judgment, that he had the right reaction. And Mm. I didn't think he was worried enough. So one day I march out to the mailbox. I get our bills. It happens to have the mortgage bill in it. You know, the old days when you actually got it in the mailbox (laughs) as opposed to online. And I walk in and there's my husband playing his Xbox in the living room. He's playing the game. He's shooting stuff. And I just was like going to do what wives or husbands can do. I was going to lose it. And I thought, you know what? Take a step back, take a deep breath. And I said, Brian, can you do me a favor? And he said, what? And to his credit, he put down his little Game Boy thing. (laughs) And he goes, what? And I go, can you just tell me when you are going to start to worry about our financial situation? And he sat there for a minute and he really thought about it. And he goes, when they start repoing our stuff, I said, what? He goes, yeah, like when they take the car and the TV and the, so we hysterically started laughing. And I think that was the first time that my husband and I realized that while we shared values, we had been married over 10 years at that point, while we shared values that we had never really discussed our money history, we had never discussed, you know, how I viewed savings versus how he viewed savings. And we had very different ideas about it. So for him, he was going to be fine unless, you know, his car got repoed. And for me, if I didn't have 25% of my annual gross salary in an emergency fund, Mm -hmm. then I was broke. So that was the beginning of us opening up and talking about money. Mm -hmm. And so the point of that story is often it isn't talking about the dollars or cents first. 
it's talking about, you know, how were you raised around money? What did your parents teach you? Did you talk? Did you not talk about money? And really getting into kind of what are the thoughts and beliefs underneath the behaviors as opposed to judging somebody for their history. It's really kind of getting curious and learning about their history. And I mm-hmm. le- we learned a lot and we're continuing to learn a lot. <laughs> and by the way, we ended up being fine in the long run financially. So kudos to us. Is he still your neighbor? No, no, <laughs> gone. Never saw him again. No? Well. Gone. Oh yeah. There, I could write a whole book on that. <laughs> well, I, I think that that story is a good example that people can take in terms of a lot of what you're trying to do is break money taboos and communicate better. Because, you know, I, I find it so, there's many people, including myself, we all struggle with this idea of talking to someone else, let alone our significant other about money. And when we don't peel back those layers to see what our thoughts, feelings, and beliefs are about money, they present in ways we, you know, we probably don't want them to. But my question now is about our, our money beliefs. So from my reading, from my learning, I've learned that these like beliefs are given to us, like based on what our families were doing, what we socially viewed and learned. As trained in psychology, is that correct? And can we change those beliefs? So if, if I was a child and I learned or from social learning or just flat out, they told me this, is that actually how our beliefs are, are created? And then if so, can we change those? Yes. So the good news is we can change at any point in our life when we want to change. But to answer the first part of your question, all of us start learning about money around age five. We become kind of aware of money and we typically watch significant caregivers, our parents, people who are important to us, talk about money, manage money, maybe argue about money. And without even realizing it, we're coming up with a lot of thoughts and beliefs or developing our mindset around finance. Mm-hmm. And so because our a lot of our beliefs are formed when we are so young, they tend to be very simple. Like going back to saving money is good. That's a pretty mm-hmm. simple statement. It doesn't really highlight the complexity of the financial decision you have to make as an adult, whether to save, whether to invest, whether to you know take on some debt, whatever it is. And so as we grow up, many of us are very unaware that we have this mindset and that there is these thoughts that are influencing us. The the easiest way to relate to it, I think, Sean, is, you know, that self-talk, you know, you get ready in the morning, you're combing your hair, Mm -hmm. you know, you're like, or you're thinking, oh, I have to do this. I have to do this. It's that quiet self-talk. Well, we have it around money. We just have to tune into it. And so when you start to tune into it, what you realize is you have all of these different money scripts, which is each thought and belief is called a money script, and those scripts impact our behavior. Now, in terms of changing it, and that's a lot of the work that I do, is that we can change it, but we first need to become aware of it. So it's uncovering what those thoughts and beliefs were. And it isn't just your family, by the way. It's also um, society, your culture, your generation, your social class. All of these things impact how you think about money. And once you uncover that stuff, then you can decide as an adult, does this way of thinking about money serve me? In other words, help me? Or in some situations, is it not useful? And then you start to change those beliefs. And there's you know, a whole process you go through to change those beliefs. But I just want people to know that you are not stuck with the way you're thinking and, and forever it's going to be like that. In fact, it can be really empowering to change your thoughts around money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good news. We can change our thoughts. Now, (laughs) 
couples, although they have a lot of things in common and share values, they might not all be ready to change at the same time. So what what do you think if you have a a couple, they might be reading your books, listening to other podcasts with similar uh, topics around money, scripts and beliefs, and they're like, I'm ready, I'm going to change. And they go and bring this exciting podcast to their spouse and like, listen, change we're changing or even start using the words we are changing yeah we're changing our budget we're going to downsize our house what would you say to that person who who just got inspired and is ready to change and how they communicate to their spouse yes and, and i'm i'm giggling because i have to say i identify with the idea that if you know if i think it's a good idea then everybody should think <laughs> yeah. it's a good idea and so really it's taking a step back i mean it's great that you're excited to change But really, the only part that we can control is our own thoughts and beliefs and behaviors around money. We Mm -hmm. can't change somebody else. And, you know, most of us know that intellectually, but we still try to do it. Mm -hmm. And so what what I encourage people to do that get in that spot is remember that you can give someone an invitation to change, Mm. to have a dialogue, but they get to decide when, where, and if they're going to do it. Mm-hmm. And often what I find in working with couples or working with families or even individuals is that if you kind of just keep chipping away at it, if you keep, keep ta- you know, you can talk about what your experience is and I'm wondering what you you know, this is what I learned after listening to podcast. I'm wondering mm-hmm. what you think about, you know, judgment and finance. It, as long as you kind of keep the dialogue going, chances are someone's going to realize this isn't so scary. But if you go in and say, you need to change, I mean, what's your reaction when you get pointed at? You, no. Yeah. I don't want to change. You don't even have to say anything. It's a really good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's really important instead of to point, to kind of invite and get curious. And uh, I have to tell you, I've been married uh, almost 25 years, I guess. And um, it's easier to invite somebody, I think, when you're dating than when you've been in a long-term relationship because you just get in this vibe mm-hmm. and then you have to remind yourself, okay, it's an invitation. Mm-hmm. Same thing with elderly parents, right? You know, um, you can invite your your parent to talk about finances and engage in a conversation because you're concerned about them, but only they get to decide if they're going to participate. I think the good news is a lot of times people come around, but they don't come around by saying, we're going to do this now. Mm-hmm. So this goes to communicating, but also judgments, because when we go and speak to our spouse or when we give them this invitation, I'm just thinking as we're talking, but could a lot of us wanting to give that invitation be a judgment that they need to change? And and if so, I think that's correct. Like, I think that should be okay. But I think the part that sometimes, and I, I guess I'm speaking from experience, <laughs> is that I might send an invitation to change, but I have a judgment that my way is correct. And maybe I won't be open to, I, uh, in that motivational interviewing book, they talk about dance oh, yeah. versus yeah. like, yeah. I forget the other analogy, but it's like a drill sergeant. Like you want to dance with change instead of a drill sergeant. Maybe just speak to being like, if we have, uh, I, I guess the desire to talk to our spouse about it, that's, that could be a judgment that they need to change, but be, how do we become open to dance instead of being like that high intensity drill sergeant working workout person? Well, you mentioned motivation to ch- uh, motivational interviewing, motivational change. So very quickly, the way human beings typically change a habit that isn't useful for them is they go through a process from denial, I don't have a problem, to maybe I have a problem, I think I have a problem, let me figure out how to solve it, and then they solve it. 
Mm-hmm. So when someone's in denial or someone's feeling like they don't have a problem and you, you are saying, no, you need to change. Typically what people will do again is say, no, they may not say it with verbally, but they'll mm-hmm. say it through their actions. And so what we want to do is not necessarily focus on motivating them, but understanding where they're coming from. So you have to meet somebody, mm-hmm. you know, where they're at. And yes, I do think it's the judgment that you're saying, you know, you should do it my way. But there are certain things, certain dances that couples do, to use that analogy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that happens with money is sometimes there's someone who really loves finance or thinks they're really good and maybe they are good at finance. And it's kind of a uh, my way or the highway philosophy, as opposed to the idea of if we work on this together and there's some value I can provide and some value you can provide around this thing called money, then we can figure out how to do it together. Mm -hmm. So I'll I'll give you an example. So let's go back to my uh, story about getting ripped off by the contractor. Mm -hmm. I was raised that saving was important and you always save money every month. You know, you made the car payment, even if you didn't have a car payment to save for your down payment, very conservative, right? And my husband was raised with, if there was any money left over after the bills, you spent it. Mm-hmm. And so there's a very two different philosophies. He was also raised with the idea that not everything that's really enjoyable costs money. So as we were going through this process, instead of me saying, well, we have to get really conservative and we have to do it my way, what we worked on, and it wasn't easy, but what we worked on was what from his philosophy or his mindset is useful and what from my mindset is useful. Well, saving on a regular basis is a really kind of healthy practice. So that's mine. What I learned from him is sometimes I save too much and it might be nice to enjoy Mm -hmm maybe at a low cost, something and spend some money. So there's this balance, you know, and when couples get together, we tend to attract to opposites. So spenders tend to find savers, you know, and so it, it's at the end of all of this, what's hysterical is I'll be like, hey, Brian, I'd really like to go out to dinner. Let's go out to dinner. And he'll turn to me and he'll go, you know what, Kathy, maybe we should, you know, save on that and stay home. <laughs> totally different than when we first got married, but he's taken some of my stuff and incorporated it in his money relationship. And I've taken some of his stuff. And that's what the strength of talking about money and working around money as a couple is. It, we're actually better together if we can just let go of that judgment and really learn from our partners. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big key thing for so many people uh, for money conversation is letting go of that judgment. And his actions are perfect, like make perfect sense based on his upbringing and yours too. There's no right or wrong. And I think when we can recognize that judgment, then we open ourselves up to being like, Hey, maybe I should spend a bit more. So I think the other thing, just to jump in, if if you want to invite your partner, it's not like you should change around money, but it could be, (laughs) no, I I've been reading this book or listening to this podcast or just thinking about it. And I would love for us to have a better relationship around money. And I know I have some work to do. You know, I don't know what you think about this, but would you be willing to start to talk about it? And so that that sets you up as we're going to do this together as opposed mm-hmm. to I'm going to fix you. Ah, so that, I think those are two, two big ones is that the remove that judgment, but we are going to do this together. And well, I think- like to do this with me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, I was doing it. <laughs> would you like to? 
But uh, I've seen them as a coupleship or as a, as a we, as opposed to, like you said, yeah. you need to fix this. And I think when we just look at communication, I mean, maybe there's some truth in like this one person needs to be fixed. But when someone's coming at them, like, I'm going to fix you or you need to fix this for a relationship. I think it doesn't matter if they're spending 200% of their income, they're going to be like, whoa, back off. And and so one of the amazing things and one of the gifts I think that happened in uh, my marriage was, you know, and this is super judgy and this is right. (laughs) You know, I had just balanced banks as an FDIC bank examiner. So I knew money and I was amazed when my husband and I started talking about it, started working through a spending plan because of getting ripped off. We needed to pull back for a little while. And I was like amazed at how good he was at spreadsheets, how he actually, when we talked to our advisor, is really great at listening, retaining the information about investments. And I mean, it's horrible that I say that. I love him. He's a great guy. But I was just like, wow, (laughs) he's got some stuff I don't have. Like this might work. And so really trying to find that thing that your partner has that you don't, because none of us are perfect around money. Yeah. Even if we think we are, we're not. <laughs> no. I certainly felt like that uh, growing up. Uh, I had a frugal background, saved money, went into the financial planning career. When we got together, with my, when my wife and I got together, I certainly had that idea. Oh, yeah, well, I'm, I know everything. And I, I've been humbled over and over and over <laughs> but that I don't know everything. And in <laughs> fact, my, my rigid views cause more complications than not. Well, with me, with me, actually, the control that I like to have over money that I wasn't aware of. I mean, we got engaged and I'm not making this up. The next day I went to the bank, put all our money together and we signed joint accounts and he never wrote a check for 10 years. Like I took control Mm -hmm. of everything and I wasn't even, but he also abdicated control. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, again, thinking about what are the ways in which even if it appears that we are the healthy one financially what are the areas that we might need to work on? And so sharing control was Mm -hmm. mine. Yeah. Control is exact same thing for me. And even my wife would agree is that she loves the human services and her work as a community health nurse. Money's not her thing, but what I've realized, it doesn't matter if she doesn't love it. It's like anybody wants some sort of control over something and feeling out of control is not a good feeling. So Where I want to go to the next question is, I think a lot of times people don't realize that there's not a balance in their money relationship with with their spouse. Like say you're somebody who's like you in in the first 10 years writing all the checks, feel like your spouse is being like, yeah, it's fine. Go ahead. What would you say to those people to like just check in? Have we ever had these conversations and like maybe speak to those people who are like, oh no, things are good. We don't really talk about money, but I write the checks or this, you know. Maybe speak to those people and just talk about what could be happening behind the scenes that they're completely unaware of. Well, I I think one of the, there's a couple of things that come to mind. One of them is if you have one person making and managing the money and do and making all the financial decisions, you know, inevitably something's going to happen to one partner and it Mm -hmm. may be the man, it may be the woman. But as a result, you know, the last thing you want to do is be figuring out your finances and where the bills are and the passwords and all that stuff if you have a sick spouse or you have Mm. somebody who's passed away. So, I mean, I know that's fairly dramatic, but, you Mm -hmm. know, trust me, you do not want to be doing that. The other thing that is more immediate, I think, is that actually communicating about money and having whether it's weekly, monthly, you know, money chats, it actually increases the intimacy 
in a relationship. They've done research that found that couples who were married that routinely talked about money actually had greater intimacy and marital satisfaction. And so why is that? Well, the reason is, yes, it's about money up here, but underneath how you spend money, how you save money, you know, what you think about and plan for the future in terms of, you know, travel and, you know, if you're going to retire, whatever it might be, all of that speaks to our values. Mm -hmm. So when you engage in a money conversation with your spouse or a friend or, or anyone, you learn so much about them that's in addition to the dollars and cents. Mm -hmm. And so I really encourage people that, you know, you can go your whole life and not talk about money. For generations, we've done that. But you really miss out on mm -hmm. being able to communicate, create this intimacy, and really use your financial resources according to your value system. And, and you know, it sounds corny, but having researched these books, I mean, I, I talk about money all the time. And the, the, ha the happy part is that people talk to me, Sean, because, you know, when you write a book, Breaking Money Silence, they'll ask you money questions. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> but through those conversations, I've learned so much about people and uh -huh. had some really interesting just learnings that I encourage people. It, it, it opens up this whole facet that I know many of us want to talk about. We're just afraid to get the conversation started. So this makes me think about, you talk about values. I can't remember who it was. It was on a podcast similar, but this is, it was a relationship expert guy. And he was talking about how most couples are just in a transactional relationship where they go about their day. They don't actually dive in to understand each other's values. I would like to get your perspective on how couples can integrate this values exercise. And like, how do we actually know each other's values? Because I think when we start dating, we don't being like, hey, what do you value in life? Like, we don't actually ask them. We might have a judgment of what they value and we could be completely wrong. But say someone is doing these money exercises, they're checking in every month, they're checking off the box. Like, okay, we never overspent, we never did this. But how can you go deeper in terms of money conversations when we actually touch on the values? Because I'm a believer in when we understand our values and spend money on those things, then we start to experience a different, um, a different level of enjoyment. But my question is, how do we start having those conversations with our spouse about values and how important is it to have shared values in your financial life? Well, I, I think in terms of shared values, I, I think they don't have to be 100% shared, but okay. I do think that couples who tend to stay married longer, to tend to manage their money successfully together, typically have a, a group of core shared values. And often we're drawn to somebody in a dating relationship, unless it's an unhealthy uh, dating relationship that has some of our shared values. So I'll give you a really simple exercise that people mm -hmm. can do. And you can do this by yourself. You can do this with your partner, depending on your situation. You just take your uh, credit card or your debit card statement from last month. You look at every entry and you ask yourself, what does this expense, <laughs> like if I had to pick a value, what, what value goes with this particular expense? So if you saw, and I'll use myself again, if you saw our credit card statement, because we're Gen Xers, almost boomers, we don't do the debit card that much. <laughs> um, when you look at the credit card statement, you'd see a large amount of money uh, at our ski resort, a bike shop, travel to ski mountains. And, and all of those relate to our love of the outdoors and our love of sports. Mm -hmm. And and you'd also maybe see some things that are for, you know, restaurant expenses before 
we're in the current mm-hmm. situation that we're in. <laughs> we go out a lot. And so, you know, another value would be hanging out with friends and having good food. So if you look down your statement, you can start to look at what are the values that I'm honoring? And often what people will discover is that there might be something on that list that you think, well, it's nice to have that, but that's not really a core value. Mm. So once again, an example from my credit card, getting my nails done. They're currently not done. And, um, you know, I enjoy it for my profession. When I'm out speaking, it's really great to have my nails done. It's part of what I do. But is it a value? Is it something that's really, I have to spend money on? No. And, you know, I don't even think my husband notices, so it's not his value either. (laughs) So it's really kind of thinking through where is our money going? How does that tie to our value? So that's a way to start to have that conversation Mm -hmm. and look at, are you in alignment? Mm -hmm. Because I think we talked about this before, Sean, if you're in alignment with and spending in alignment with your values, you tend to be happier and you're not chasing more and more money. You're Mm -hmm. making your money work for you and you're feeling satisfied. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic exercise. And then that helps you identify that if you're in alignment or not. And I've often heard that is like living in congruence with your values. And I, I think that's a very powerful exercise because it's a easy, not easy, but it's a good way to be like, hey, you know what? I'm just saying the nails because you said that. Uh, like, I don't need to do my nails or I spend 40% of my monthly in- income on cars, for an example. And I don't like cars. So yeah, exactly. Yes. It could be any, and you discover things that are kind of interesting. And, you know, the only caveat I do is if you do this with a partner, it's not about, see, you spent too much. Ah, or yeah. you, you cannot, you have to be just like, we're just looking at value. Yeah. <laughs> There's that judgment. Get the judgment out. Yeah. Okay. So I want to switch gears a little bit. And you have a story about a wrinkled shirt that I think that you should share. <laughs> I don't know the story. So, Let's hear about your wrinkled shirt. Sure. So the backdrop before the story is that, uh, as I said at the opening of the show, that my job is to go speak, write, consult around uh, gender and money. And I, of course, am very passionate about being an empowered woman, female breadwinner in the house. and, And I really pride myself on busting gender myths wide open. So that's the backdrop. So one morning, my husband, uh, Brian, who's an engineer, comes down to go to work. And, you know, I don't know if this is going to resonate with your audience. If you think Vermont, right? Plaid shirt, Carhartt pants, extremely wrinkled. He is so wrinkled. (laughs) And as he walks down the stairs, I go, I said, you have to go up and iron. I said, what is your boss, Jim, going to think of me if you go to work that wrinkled? And he turned and he looked at me and he just smiled because we've been together a long time. And I said, oh, I can't believe I just said that. (laughs) So basically, deep-seated belief that I had was I was responsible for my husband being Mm -hmm. ironed and pressed to go off to work so he could impress his boss. Mm. That is a very, and it's fine if you think this way, but that's a very 1950s woman, I stay at home thought. Here I am, this woman who's a breadwinner, who's supposedly empowered. And what struck me about that is in that moment, let me just finish, in that moment, Mm -hmm. he looked at me, he smiled, and and he laughed, and we laughed together, which is the saving grace for us. And I said to him, I said, go wrinkled or not. (laughs) You know, I'm a feminist, go wrinkled or not. (laughs) 
And so he walked out the door all wrinkled and I've never commented on his lack of ironing sense. And so it really gets down to the thoughts and beliefs we have about money and about our gender roles. They run so deep that sometimes we don't even notice that we have them. And so again, it's that curiosity around, you know, why do I think the way that I think? Where does that come from? And, you know, there's a lot around being a woman in our society and what that means to be profit motivated or to be a breadwinner or to even be interested in finance. There's a lot of myths that somehow we're just not that interested. So that's where that story comes from. Yeah, I, I brings up a lot of different thoughts. And one in particular, there's a, a research article that I read that spoke about very much what you're saying about the 1950s view on a woman maintains the household, a male's job is to go out and make income. And the article was about closing that gender gap in terms of identities of roles in the household. And there's a quote in there. It was something to the degree of, now the woman's expected to bring home the bacon, cook the bacon, and clean up the bacon. So mm-hmm. with your word of busting gender roles, how do females who traditionally might hold these deep-seated beliefs about being the, the keeper of the home, but they also have this desire to go sh- start a business, be an entrepreneur, have a passion. I, I know you said it's about having awareness of those stories, but I, I think it's quite complex. And if there's a female listening out there, or even a male who wants to be more empathetic, what would you say is, is one of the first steps to just working through that, I guess, that feeling? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I, I think, you know, first of all, my caveat is that every couple gets to decide how they're going to work mm-hmm. as a team. And I certainly, how my husband and I decided to do our marriage, it may be very different, excuse me, than how others, and that's fine. There's, mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with being in a traditional relationship. Mm-hmm. And to answer your question, one of the things that helps us become aware of all the gender myths out there, and it's not just gender myths about women, by the way, it can be about men, is actually in my book, Breaking Money Silence, I have this gender scavenger hunt. So for one day, you, it could be with a kid. If you're teaching your kids about this, it could be with a partner, could be with their family. You just spend the day right, you know, in your regular, you know, commute and work and whatever, noticing when these gender money myths come up. So I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head. So it may be you're watching TV and you're watching uh, a, a sitcom and there's a joke about money or you turn on the TV and there's that old 1950s, 60s show called Leave it to Beaver. And so the mom is the 1950s wife and the husband's the primary breadwinner. You'd write down that that's, you know, that not even that it's a myth, just that they're talking about a woman staying at home and a man being a primate breadwinner. Mm-hmm. Or it may be you listen to a, a lyric and a song on the radio and you go, oh, that's a money message. And you mm-hmm. write it down. And so you just gather all these different messages in the world. And then you start to look at, are there ones that are about gender? And what are they saying to us? What are they communicating to us? They are all around us. And I think that men are pressured. And a lot of the messages around men are men should be the primary breadwinners. Men always know about finance. Men are always interested in finance, by the way, not necessarily. And then with women, it's like women shouldn't be profit motivated. If we run businesses, we're not that serious about it. And heaven forbid, we make more than our husbands. And so when you start to look at these money myths in our society, what you start to realize is that it can impact how we're feeling about our own relationship with money. You know, I was not raised in a family where the woman was the primary breadwinner. 
I was not raised that it was okay to be profit motivated. So for me to be a successful businesswoman, and by the way, my husband's absolutely okay with it. For me to be a a successful businesswoman, I had to look at, I got to get some of that out of my head. The wrinkled shirt obviously was way down deep. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know if that makes sense, but uh, I think it's complex. And I think that kind of goes into something we were talking to you on our our previous call about your, I guess it's just even your volunteer of the year award. I think it was a a volunteer of the year award, but we had talked about, I I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but some of those scripts and those beliefs really pushed you into the volunteer world. Maybe you can touch on, on how the two of those correlate together uh, for yourself, for yourself. Yeah, no, well, and I can broaden it out as well. I, I do a lot of coaching with women entrepreneurs, business owners, and career professionals. And a lot of times what happens for women is that they discover that there are all these messages that they get growing up that have impacted their ability to ask for money, to negotiate for what they're worth, to kind of follow their financial dream. And so one of the things that I do is I have people go back and think about experiences that really impacted their relationship around money. Mm -hmm. And so for me, when I started out my business, I was a therapist before this. I was a bank examiner than a therapist. That doesn't make sense. But then (laughs) I put the two together and started my own company. And so I came from the world of counseling and health services where it's noble to be poor, you, you give, you know, you give, 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 you know, you do get underpaid by the nature of that field, unfortunately. And so then I, I decided to open up my own business. And as a result, I, I wasn't aware of it, but I was giving away all my services for free. So one day I volunteered for this great organization called the National Eating Disorder Association, near and dear to my heart. Uh, one day I get a call and they say, we would like to name you volunteer of the year. Will you accept the award at the annual conference? And I'm super touched. I'm like, oh, that's so great. Yeah, of course. I go to the conference. I step up to the podium to give my short acceptance speech. And as I'm accepting, I'm looking out in the audience and I realize that the person next to me on either side of me are my friends, are my colleagues. Each of them are being paid to be there. I look out in the audience, a lot of my friends, colleagues are being paid to be there and I'm winning volunteer of the year. So I get off stage, I sit down and I, it was an aha moment of like, okay, this is really lovely and I'm really honored, but I have to really look at why am I not being paid and everybody else seems to be being <laughs> paid at this event. What I realized was that for the first year of my business, I gave 20 hours to different volunteer opportunities. 20 hours a week, and I gave 20 hours to my business. Well, it's hard to be profitable in the first couple of years if you're giving it away for Mm -hmm. free. And then at a deeper level, when I did a little work around my relationship with money, I realized, wow, that was a great way to avoid talking about money, asking for money. And I was raised that you should be, you know, I'm a Catholic, recovered Catholic. You should, you know, be of service. I was in a profession of being of service. And then you know, to be successful, I had to learn how to not give it away. Mm-hmm. Um, I went cold turkey. I don't recommend that for everybody. But for me, I just stopped volunteering for the first couple of years of my business. And I, I wouldn't offer a service unless I was being paid for it. It was painful in the beginning. And now mm-hmm. it's second nature. And I'm really glad I did it. And now I strategically volunteer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I pick and choose my my causes. And I'm very careful with my time. Right. Yeah, it, it's... So interesting how 
a lot of our act, well, not a lot, all our actions are a result or a byproduct of everything happening like below the waterline, if we use the iceberg yes. analogy. And many times we don't take the time to t- go back and get that insight like you did. I've been like, why am I giving away 20 hours of my time? And during that time, was there a lot of self-talk or I guess rationalizing why you're doing this? Like maybe just walk through like, because I, I know I've talked to other psychologists who do a lot of pro bono work because they feel like this, like a certain demographic should be able to access their services. And I, I also hear on the other side that they experience burnout because they're, you know, it's a very emotionally engaging thing, but they're, but they're, I, I, I can kind of hear this self-talk of like, oh, I need to do this. So it's almost like justifying it. So maybe just talk if you experienced that on how did you sustain giving away 20 hours of your time a week? Well, I didn't. Um, I had a husband. I haven't always been the primary breadwinner. So I had a husband who was feeding me. That helped. I think that there is a strong message in certain career paths. Um, Psychology is certainly one of them. Healthcare is another. Teaching is another. Where there is a culture of an, an expectation that you are a good person if you give it away, and if you don't give it away or you ask to be compensated, that makes you a bad person. Again, very simplistic, but there's that culture. Mm-hmm. Then you layer upon that how you were raised. And so that could be, you know, certain religions have certain beliefs about the nobility of poverty. Certainly throw in being a female. And historically, the messages uh, have been that women are supposed to take a back seat, are not supposed to be profit motivated. Uh, And asking for money is actually perceived sometimes differently when a woman does it versus a man. And so, or, and that's changing, thank God. So you layer all of those things on it. And what ends up happening is it's not even a rationalization. It's kind of to go against the tide is really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. The biggest thing for me in stopping cold turkey and not volunteering, I'm a really good volunteer. I'm a really Mm -hmm. good board member. I had to say no a lot mm-hmm. and I had inappropriate guilt. I'd say no, I'd be feeling bad, like a little obsession of like, oh, they're not going to like me. They're not going to, you know, whatever thought mm-hmm. I had about it. And then I realized, wait a second, none of that happened. They mm-hmm. were fine when I set a limit mm-hmm. and I could then later in a more empowered way offer my services pro bono or offer to volunteer mm-hmm. or make enough money where I could write a big check and mm-hmm. they might be able to use that and that would be real useful. Mm-hmm. So, so I think it's the culture in which we work, the culture mm-hmm. or the family we come from, and then our own self-talk around, is it okay to say no and set boundaries around our time and to want to make money and want to make our worth? Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that, but in certain professions, it's judged. Yeah. And it's too bad it's judged because arguably those are the the individuals and the professions that have this giving mindset that we maybe even want to have the wealth as opposed to some other professions that are very ego driven. But uh Yeah, it's a big it's a big thing in the helping services. Yeah. I like to ask for a book recommendation. So the first one, let's recommend one of your books. It might be your newest one. So I'll, I'll let you. Just, you want my book? Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that one. And then just based on this last conversation, if it, it doesn't have to be a book or a resource that uh, helped you or you've seen helped other people in the, whether it's the helping services or someone who just is afraid to earn their worth. Is there any resource or book? And it might even be your book that can help people work through that. So I have three things that came to mind and I'll be quick. The first, obviously, I'm going to plug my own book called yes, Breaking Money <laughs> Silence. 
It was published late 2017. It's available on Amazon and it really takes you through the money talk taboo. And then each chapter really addresses different types of conversations with different people in your lives. It's very doable and practical and has stories in it. I think you'll enjoy it. It's it's my favorite of my five books. Okay. Um, and the the book that I would recommend by a colleague that that changed my view of money and I think can be really useful for people is called The Financial Wisdom of Ebenezer Scrooge. Have you ever read that book? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I love that book. Yeah. And that was the first time I realized, oh, there's something to how we think and feel about money that impacts how financially successful or not successful we are. Mm-hmm. Um, that's by Ted Klontz, Brad Klontz, and Rick Kaler. And then the last resource, and I can make this available to you and your audience, is I am launching a a Breaking Money Silence e-learning lab, and I have a free course. So uh, it's designed for women, although men could participate in it, and it's called How to Overcome Your Fear of Negotiation. And it really starts people in the process of looking at what are their beliefs about negotiation in particular, and how does that get in the way of them asking, earning and asking for what they're worth. Um, oh, so wow. I, I'll make sure you get, that's hot off the press. So I'll make oh, sure you, no, yeah. like, maybe we can even offer them a little bit of a discount code. Anybody who listens to your show. Oh, that, that'd be great. That sounds like a fantastic course. Yeah, it was fun to put together. <laughs> I, I want to be respectful of your time. And do you have any f- like final comment, final statement about the work you're doing and just a message you would like to leave for people? I do. I do. Thank you for asking. You know, breaking money silence is something that I write about, but my hope is that there'll be a revolution and that certainly a revolution has not been done by one person. Mm -hmm. So I need absolutely everybody. And so when I speak, when I go on podcasts and I ask your, your listeners as well, I really encourage people to join the breaking money silence revolution. And so Mm -hmm. what does that mean? That means that after listening to this podcast or a future podcast of yours, mm-hmm. you will have one money conversation that you wouldn't have mm-hmm. had before. One mm-hmm. small, it could be 10 minutes. It could be getting curious about somebody else's relationship with money, getting curious about your own. And if each and every one of us had one money conversation that we didn't have in the past, eventually there'd be a trickle effect and the taboo would be gone. Mm-hmm. I think we can do that. Where can people find you? Your website? Yeah, the easiest place is breakingmoneysilence.com and then you'll see all my social and all the other stuff from there. So breakingmoneysilence.com, easy peasy. And I saw all your books are there so they can purchase, probably take you to Amazon, but wonderful. Thank you so much. I know, as you mentioned in this, you protect your time. Thus, like we all should be protecting your time. I appreciate you spending it with me. And uh, I look forward to following you online and seeing what you're doing. And this course sounds phenomenal. So thanks again for being here today. Well, thank you, Sean, for being a a revolutionary and breaking money (laughs) silence with me. Thank you. All right. I just love having these conversations with individuals like Kathleen. It really reinforces to me the importance of our mission on the show to really look at the intersection of our mind, our money, and what matters most. As we talked about with Kathleen, so much of financial planning, so much of personal finances lies below the waterline in our minds. So here are my three key takeaways for the show with Kathleen. Number one, the importance of practicing and using good communication when we're having money conversations. And that starts with accepting the emotions that come along with our money. 
And as much as we don't want to think or we don't want to believe that we have emotions with our money, we do. And when we can accept these emotions, we can have better communication with our spouses, our partners, or with whomever when talking about money. Number two, when she talks about what is judgment and how money judgment can negatively impact us and our money stories that we tell ourselves and how judgment also negatively impacts our conversations around money with ourselves and others. And number three, no matter how much we try to avoid our deeply rooted money beliefs, if we don't accept them and honor them and shine a light on them, they'll show up in some capacity when we most, when we don't. And number three, no matter how much we try to avoid our deeply rooted money beliefs, if we don't honor them and accept them and shine a light on them, these beliefs will show up and most often they'll show up in negative ways that we really don't want and that are often damaging to ourselves. And I know I said three, but my fourth one is acknowledging the gender discrepancies that exist and the barriers that exist between genders when looking at money. But thanks for, to individuals like Kathleen and others, those barriers are becoming smaller and smaller. However, it is important that we recognize those barriers and discrepancies. So, thank you so much for listening to Breaking the Money Silence with Kathleen Burns Kingsbury. If you've been enjoying the shows and you've been listening, please head over to Apple Podcast or Spotify and leave a review and a rating. This means a lot to the shows as it helps with our ranking so that we can continue to bring great guests week after week. So head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave a review. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Also, I want to let everyone know that Kathleen has graciously shared a course for our listeners that can get 10% off. Here's a little caption from the course. Discover how to be financially confident, talk more openly about money, and be more profitable in your business by signing up for the Breaking Money Silence Learning Lab. Just go to the link on the show notes and use the discount code NEGOTIATE10. That's NEGOTIATE10 with a capital N to receive 10% off thanks to Kathleen. Thank you so much, Kathleen, and take care.